Uh, turn over to Acts 17. I've been there forever. Acts chapter 17. Two weeks ago we began to examine the sermon Paul preached before the high court of Athens, the Areopagus, or Areopagus, whatever. He had been brought before that court to explain his beliefs and teachings. He began his message by acknowledging their religiosity, their idols. He reminded them of an altar they had built, dedicated, built and dedicated to the unknown God, as if they didn't want to miss a God. There's a couple of different theories out there on why they did that, but there was this altar that had no name. It wasn't the altar to Zeus or any of those other gods. And uh, they had this thing, and he used this as, as an opportunity to present the one true God. All right, you, you have this unknown God. I, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to take the true God and put him in that slot because it doesn't belong there, but I'm going to use this as an opportunity to proclaim the true God and the gospel. He went on to preach nine truths about God in order to build a foundation for the presentation of the gospel, which would come in today's message, hopefully, if we get there. So nine truths about God that he presented to these Areopagus. Uh, we covered five of them, uh, was it last week or the week before? Didn't Aaron preach on uh, general revelation last week? So it was a couple of weeks ago where we did these. I'll just hit them real quick. God, number one was God created the world and everything in it as verse 24. Number two, God is Lord of heaven and earth. Verse 24, God cannot be contained or restricted uh, to temples and so on. Verse 24, God is not dependent upon human beings for anything. Verse 25, human beings rather are completely dependent upon God for everything. Verse 25, those are the five that we covered before we identify the remaining four truths about God, let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, open our hearts and minds to you. Speak truth to us. Change us, transform us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Who is the one who applies the truth to us? We do not want to come in as so-and-so and leave as the same so-and-so. We want this time to be edifying, Father. We want to be conformed to the image of Christ, that we might be like him in every way and bring you glory. Speak to us now, and we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's begin at verse 26. I did talk about 26 a little bit last time. We're going to look at 26 and 29. I'll read them aloud, and then we'll, we'll get into our exposition. You ready? If you're ready, there it is. I like how Aaron's learning to use my little... Nuance, he actually did it to jack me up, but uh, it's okay. As Phil says, if you're ready, say I'm ready. I pick up on everything. I record stuff. All right, when I need that later, I'll remind him of that. Who knew it would be the next Sunday? 26, Acts chapter 17, verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should, this is interesting, seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. I love that. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him, he quotes, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring 
29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Okay, so the sixth thing, the sixth point or truth about God that he makes here from the text is that God created all mankind. Now, I know I talked about that a little bit weeks ago, but I, I couldn't see how I could get into this text without going back through that just a, a little bit. It's, it's highly important, and you're going to hear new things about this. God created all mankind. In verse 26, he says, and he made from one man every nation. See how it says, and he made from one man, speaking of Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, comma. I talked about this weeks ago. It wasn't enough for Paul to present God as the creator of the world and everything. He, he desired to get specific about what God created. He wanted his listeners to know that God had also created them. The Athenians, the Areopagus, the judges, all people. He wanted these guys to know and to hear that God had created all people. Now, there are at least three reasons why he presented God as the creator of all people that I can think of here. I'm sure you can think of more. I'm sure there's much more intelligent pastors and scholars or more insightful that have a zillion things, but I think that I've come up with three reasons why he presented God as the creator of all people. A would be comprehension of the gospel. Paul's purpose in Athens was to preach the gospel. Whenever Paul went to a city, even though he was going to Athens to escape persecution back in Berea by those Jews from Thessalonica, he basically went on this whole mission trip and went to these cities for the purpose of preaching the gospel. His, his entire ministry and life after being saved was about preaching the gospel, and it, and it should be ours as well. Maybe not in the same way that he did it, the same style. We go to the same types of cities. We go abroad to do it, but it is about preaching the gospel. But see, Paul knew that the gospel would only make sense to the Athenians, to his listeners, if he presented it in a creator-creation fall-of-man context. The gospel is the good news that God the creator sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to redeem sinners. Yeah, but not just sinners. All of creation which has fallen under sin. When we think of the gospel, we need to think of a worldwide redemption. That he's going to make all things new. And, and Paul knew that if he just jumped right in with Jesus and the cross and these things, to these people would make no sense because they don't understand God. They don't understand creation. They don't understand that there's been a fall. They had this American ideal that we're pretty much good. We're good people. Look at us. We're productive. We make money. We build nice places and, and these sorts of things. So he knew that he had to bring this into the, the context of creation and redemption, if you will. The gospel does, it must therefore, but it does begin with God, creation, and the fall of man. I don't know how we can get to the place where we think that the gospel is divorced from God and creation and the fall. The gospel would include those components. The gospel makes no sense without them. Paul knows this. The gospel will never make sense, and I wonder if how many times my evangelistic efforts just out and about have failed because I didn't 
care to bring the listener into the context of a God creation and fall, but it will never make sense to anyone if it's divorced from creator, creation, fall context. It doesn't make any sense. The Athenians were ignorant and oblivious to these foundational truths, and that is precisely why Paul spent all this time elaborating on and expounding on nine things about God, that he could bring them into this creation, God existence context. Makes total sense, right? So it has to do with, for the, the sake of the Athenians, comprehending the gospel that he's about to proclaim, or that he is proclaiming. B, purpose for our existence the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were big on logic and reason. All philosophy is. Most of it is, I would imagine. Paul understood this. He, he knew that proclaiming God as the creator of all people would stir and stoke the philosophical minds of his hearers. He anticipated that they would begin to examine his statements and then test them to see if they led to any logical conclusions. They, they may have been thinking something along the lines of this as Paul's expounding these points, especially the one about creating men. If a creator created all people, then our existence may have something to do with the creator. See, that's logic. If there's a creator and he created all people, then maybe we have some sort of connection to him, if you will. Maybe the creator created us for a purpose, Maybe our existence has something to do with our creator, as he says. Now, see, these are all logical responses to Paul's statements about God. The Athenians literally believed that all things served a purpose. Greeks did. They had even appointed gods to oversee, regulate, manage, and spiritualize all things, literally. Paul had already told them that God created the world and everything in it. Logically speaking, this would mean that all created things exist for God and for his purposes. Now, when we apply the same logic to uh, created human beings, we find that all human beings must also exist for God and for his purposes. These are the logical points that Paul was seeking to make here. See, when we read this sermon and study this sermon, we don't typically, typically think of Paul using philosophy to reach his hearers, but he is. He is speaking in truthful terms, but he is also speaking in philosophical terms, trying to lead them with logical points that lead them to logical conclusions. That's exactly what he's attempting to do. You talk about knowing your audience. He's standing before philosophers. It makes sense that he would use a philosophical angle on this. These are logical points that he's seeking to make that they would come to logical conclusions. And this leads to the third reason, see accountability to the creator. See, we have comprehension of the gospel. We have a purpose for our existence is what he's trying to articulate here. And, 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 and because God created all people, then, then certainly all people must be accountable to the creator. If they all exist for him, surely they must be accountable to him. Paul made this absolutely clear in verse 24 where he said that God, the creator God, right? The unknown God who is actually the God who created all these things is also Lord of heaven and earth. That's an accountability statement. 
Lord means sovereign ruler over all, owner of all, manager of all, king over all. This is an all, Lord is an all-inclusive statement. It means he's bad to the bone and he's over it all and it's all his. That's what it means to be the Lord. So in him saying in verse 24 that God is Lord of heaven and earth, you are accountable to him. You belong to him. You are created by him. I love how R.C. Sproul puts something. And, and, and I'll keep in mind that, that Lord means sovereign over all, all things. Not just people, but over all of creation. I love what Sproul says. He says, there is no maverick molecule if God is sovereign Not one atom, not one molecule, not one cell, not one person, not one bird, not one star is outside of his sovereign lordship and control. That's an amazing truth. That's a a truth that I can't even wrap this, you know, mind around, to be honest with you. I I can get a little segment of it, but I can't get my whole mind around that. And that is the truth of Scripture the Lord's rule is, 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 is over all the molecules. It's over the mules too, by the way. It's over everything. It's over all people, all over everything, everything. And, and I like this. It's over all people, despite whether they acknowledge that or not. I, I don't like it when people try to lead people in some kind of prayer to, to receive Jesus and say, make him the Lord of your life. Hold on a second. He is the Lord of your life. You're not making him anything. You might be for the first time in that moment acknowledging that fact by God's grace and illuminating power through the Holy Spirit, but nobody makes him Lord. He is Lord of the living and Lord of the dead, Lord of the saved, Lord of the lost. He is Lord over all. No one is outside of his lordship. He is the king over his creation. Think of the earth like a kingdom where some honor and adore the king and where others don't. Point being, the kingdom, which is the world, still belongs to the king nonetheless, whether people acknowledge him and worship him or not. You, you, can't, uh, you can rent a house and make it nice, or you can trash it, but it still belongs to a landlord. See, it is the same with the world. The creator God owns the world, and he is the world's landlord. It all belongs to him. The world and everything in it belong to him, including all people. Now, thinking in terms of logic again, as some of Paul's hearers were doing, this would mean that all people are accountable to the creator and sovereign Lord. These are the logical conclusions that he's wanting his hearers to arrive at. Three reasons why, right there. Now, seven. God predetermined how long men will live and where they will live. Verse 26, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. This statement has to do with God's sovereign control, absolutely, but it has to do with his providence. And we heard a little bit about that earlier. Men are 
not the mere product of evolution or some other theory or process, and their lives and dwelling places have not been determined by happenstance or by the will of man. On the contrary, the creator God has determined these things by the counsel of his own will and by the counsel of his own providence. Providence basically means God's divine guidance over human affairs. Some refer to this as common grace. I'm not a big fan of, of that, that phrase because I don't like to think of God's grace as ever being common. I don't see variations in his grace. I don't, personally. And if you do, that's okay. I'm not bashing you. But I think the biblical way to look at God's control over all things and, and his love for his creation and all this would be through providence, not common grace. I don't ever want to think of God's grace as being common. The Bible doesn't really cast God's grace that way. It's always spectacular and miraculous and absolutely amazing. Now, the Bible also does not cast God as one who simply set things in motion and stepped away while the universe runs and manages itself. No, the Bible says that God not only created everything, but that he controls and providentially sustains everything. There are dozens of scriptural examples for this. I'll read a couple of them to you. Jeremiah 10, 12 to 13. It is God who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens when he utters his voice. Okay, that's present tense. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and he brings forth the wind from his storehouses. This is God providentially controlling weather. Psalm 104, verses 13 to 14. Now, you ought to go back on your time, on your own time, and read all of Psalm 104. It's all about God's providence. Quote completely about that. It says, he waters the mountains, present tense, future tense. He's caring for it. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers the earth is satisfied with the fruit of his works. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle. What? Yeah. And vegetation for the labor of man. You know what? When you got a drought and you have no crops, God's behind that. It's not because we just don't have rain. He's the one that releases rain. And it says, so that he may bring forth food from the earth. Now we're talking about sustaining people's lives through food. That's a providential act of God. Colossians 1, 16 to 17. For by Jesus all things were created, what? Yeah. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. See, we're talking about God's providence in him sustaining the lives of people, his saints, those who are lost, cattle, grass, trees, everything. It's all under his sovereign lordship, under his control. He cares for all of it according to his own counsel, the counsel of his own will and providence. In simple terms, God runs the galaxies. See, he not only created all this stuff, but he runs it and manages it and gives it life and beauty. He sustains all of it. 
And according to Colossians 1, he does this through Jesus Christ. This was another blast against the Athenians, the Epicureans, and Stoics. The, the Athenians believed that many gods cared for the world, and the philosophers believed that if there were gods, they were purely transcended and off somewhere in the universe, enjoying themselves and smoking big Cubans, and while the world just pretty much sustained itself. And you know, you need to know this. God is behind all of it. He didn't, he didn't create things that they would be self-sustaining. He didn't create things that they would be self-reproductive. I believe if he's truly sovereign, he causes everything to grow, everything to wither. He is behind it all. A lot of people have a confusion about that, that, well, he just created a self-sustaining world, and now he's off doing his thing. No, that's not what the Bible teaches over and over and over. This was a blast against the Athenians and the philosophers. They, they thought the opposite, or they thought at least a lot of gods did all these things. And some believed that God was transcendent and off somewhere else. Eight, God's creation and providential activity should move men to seek and find him. And 27, that they, speaking of humanity should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. It's an amazing passage. This is a reference to what Aaron described last Sunday. It was last Sunday, Aaron. I, by memory, 44 years old, it starts to go. Some of you guys are older and you don't even know my name. Um, God's general revelation. That's what he talked about. Bruce is nodding his head, amen, brother. That's the most potent truth you've said in years. Memory starts to go, doesn't it? What's my name, Bruce? <laughs> no, you said, uh, Oscar? 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 I'm just trying to figure out how Oscar came to your mind right there. I, I haven't said, I don't think I've ever said that name my entire existence. Oscar. Sesame Street, is that what you're talking about? Mosey around in garbage cans? Is that who did that? Was that Oscar? All right, whatever. Whatever, dude, I'll talk to you later. Um, this is a reference to what Aaron described last Sunday, God's general revelation. The purpose of God's creation and provision is to reveal himself. It is to reveal himself. God has made himself known through what exists and through what he gives. And through what he gives. But since the fall of man, man has continually suppressed this truth in unrighteousness Simply put, man loves his sin and does not want to be accountable to a creator. Man wants to do what he wants to do. He wants to rule himself and live out his desires and lusts and perversions. He, he even creates for himself gods that will cater to his felt needs and passions. And he does all of these things under the watchful eye of his creator. He does all of these things within the creator's creation, which is supposed to be all about the creator's glory. A little later during his sermon, Paul penned this. Uh, we read it earlier in Romans, Romans 1. Not, or not during this sermon he didn't proclaim this. He proclaimed this later on, my bad. But he said this in Romans 1, 19 to 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them. He is speaking of Gentiles, the majority of people in the world, but it would be all-inclusive. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. 
For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived even since the creation of the world, all the way back to the beginning, he says, in the things that have been made. So men are without excuse, is what he says. This is Paul really describing these Athenians and everyone else. God has made himself plain through general revelation. On top of this, there is also, we want to include the general revelation of God within the human conscience. Romans 2, 14 to 15 describes how the law of God is written on our hearts. Guilt in our conscience is actually a call from God to repent and turn to him. Not just to say you're sorry for what you've done. But, you would, but that you would actually repent and turn to God for mercy. However, apart from Jesus, there is nothing salvific about our conscience. Our turning to good at the beckoning of our conscience will not, under any circumstances, save us. But God gave us a conscience that we might feel the guilt when we sin and turn to him and be saved. But men have suppressed this safeguard as well. Men sin so much that they sear their conscience to the point that it begins to justify and affirm their wicked deeds. Their own consciences begin to work in partnership with their sin against them. We also have to deal with the devil and the demons who do all that they can to keep people in darkness and bondage to sin. So the purpose of creation and providence, even what God gives to all, is to lead us to God, but sin and the devil keep us from doing so. Nine. God is close. 27b, 28, yet he is actually not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being as even some of your own, your own, notice that, your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring, he says. The final point Paul made before calling his listeners to repent and believe the gospel has to do with the imminence of God. God is both transcendent beyond all things and imminent in our midst. This is an amazing truth because the majority of the world believes that there could be a creator, but again, the Athenian belief that he's off in the distance in a far, far away galaxy fighting Darth Vader. I don't know what he's doing out there. That he's completely transcended. I don't know if you knew this or not, but did you know that Islam, Allah, is a fully, completely transcendent God? Who basically won't even acknowledge sinners. He's so far off in the distance and so far above and and so holy or whatever it is that they've concocted that the only time you're ever going to have any interaction with him is when you stand before him and that's when he pulls out the scale and weighs your good deeds. But for the most part, he's unapproachable. He's distant. He's far. And quite honestly, if you read the Quran, he's very cold, very intolerant 
There's no grace. Grace is the most absent truth, the most absent concept in that religion. There is no grace in it. And to be quite honest with you, it would be impossible for any God who is 100% transcendent to be gracious. How can he be gracious when he's off somewhere else? Well, he created a planet that's gracious towards us. No. See, Islam teaches that God is completely transcendent and you really don't have a hope in Hades with him. Hopefully, if you do enough good things and, and in some cases kill enough people, not in all cases, not in all branches of it, but if you do the jihad thing, that's an automatic pass to stand before him in glory. It's a pretty tragic, controlling, despairing religion. It really is. The good news is, is that God saves Muslims all the time. That he is gracious towards them. But our God is not like Allah. Our God is transcendent as Allah may be or supposedly is. But he is imminent. He is here with us. And not in the sense that he's in the rocks and in the dirt. He's not a panentheist or pantheist. Pantheistic God. I don't know if that's the right term. Is that it? Where he's in all things. Did I get that right, Aaron? Pantheism? I certainly hope so, because this will come back on me. No, it won't. You people are like, he does it all the time. We're cool. It's not like this idea that he's in all these things, and therefore he's in us, and we're all God, and, and rocks are God, and candles are God, and, and, and you know, grape juice is God, and Mike's shoes are God, and Nike, God, you know? That's lunacy. He's not imminent like that, but he's imminent in his sovereign and most incredibly powerful presence. He is here in our midst. These are phenomenal truths, and this is where he's going here. He even quoted one of their own poets, the third century BC Greek poet, uh, Eratus, or Eratus. Eratus wrote a famous poem called Phenomena. Phenomena was about astronomy, or it is about astronomy and the constellations. It begins with this invocation to the Greek god Zeus, who they believed was the king of gods. Let Zeus, and this is an English translation, obviously, let Zeus be foremost, never may our hymns omit him. Zeus fills roads and markets, brims oceans and bays. By Zeus alone we live. Born as his children too. Po, Paul, po, Paul, that's what happens when you're tired. Paul quoted Eratus, or Eratus, not because he believed that God was Zeus, or that Zeus was God per se, but because he wanted to remind his listeners that at one time, one of their own poets came close to describing the true God rightly. Eratus declared that Zeus was the sovereign giver and sustainer of life. Part of his statement was true. He just had the wrong God. Paul's point here wasn't to defame Eratus or Zeus, though, however, to defame Eratus and to malign him and to slander him, who was one of their most beloved poets, and to, more importantly, to slander and malign Zeus, would have jeopardized his preaching, to say the least. Probably cost him his life if he would have slandered 
or blaspheme Zeus or their beloved poet. So he was not attempting to do that here. Why did he quote this pagan poet? It was again to draw from their own example in order to declare the one true God and then to proclaim the gospel. You see, truth is truth. And because we're sinners, we take truth and apply it to the wrong things or we do our best to suppress it. But truth is truth is truth is truth. Part of this truth is correct, just the wrong God. Paul's big point here in this particular little segment was that the philosophers had gotten it wrong in that God was not merely transcended and far off, but that he was, as the poets had described, imminent and near. In verse 29, Paul declared that the philosophers weren't the only ones who got it wrong. He said this in 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. This was an all-out rebuke. This was a correction, a harsh one. All the Athenians were guilty of missing God and then therefore guilty of idolatry. And instead of basing their theology upon what God had clearly revealed about himself in nature and so on, they based it upon their own imaginations. Now let's talk about offspring for a moment here. If people are made, speaking logically again, but if people are made in the image and likeness of God, how could they possibly, how could the Athenians or anyone possibly contrive that God is like gold or silver or a stone idol? It is as if Paul has said, God created everything you see and enjoy for your own lives and even created yourselves, you people, and you think that he's like a golden image in one of your man-made temples. This is what he's trying to communicate here. We're image bearers. God has revealed that in a sense through everything. And yet this is your vision of God. I began to ponder this for a bit the other day as I was preparing the sermon and a phrase came to my mind, Imago Dei. Imago Dei is Latin for image of God. Have you ever heard that Latin phrase? Some churches call themselves that. That's their name. That's a pretty cool word, pretty cool phrase. Imago Dei. And I thought about this. Imago Dei. What then would be the greatest proof for the existence of God? I believe it's people. I believe out of all of creation, the person and only people have been made in his image. He didn't make anything else in his image, nor angels, planets, animals. Nothing is made in the image of, uh, in the, God made only man in his image and likeness. And if God created man, then the greatest expression of God's existence would be man. Think about that for a moment. Let that drop right into there. You see, I'm coming at it a little philosophically now, but that's exactly what Paul's doing. But this is 
scriptural truth that he's preaching. This is the Bible. See, the Bible says that people alone have been created in this way. We are unique and set apart from the rest of creation because we alone have been created in the image of God. We might say this, we alone are imago Dei. We make mirrors for the purpose of examining our faces and bodies and, unfortunately, for taking selfies. When we look in a mirror intently, we might discover blemishes, wild hairs. I hate those rogue hairs. You get three of them together and you got a guitar. Yeah. We look into the mirror, we discover blemishes, wild hairs, wrinkles, or neck beef, if you're like me. You look in there and go, Lord, have mercy. Give me supernatural lipo now. How do I get rid of this? And he says in that sweet voice, stop eating Reese's. But don't we look into mirrors and we look intently and, and we see wrinkles and we see gray hairs and I hate those things, they're wild. And, 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 we, and we see, we, you know, our faces and things, we age and, and we do all we can in that mirror to, to beautify, to make ourselves maybe more attractive or at least in some cases presentable. And very unfortunately for selfies, I despise the bathroom selfie. I took one about a year ago, and I'm still paying the price, right? This is why we, why we use mirrors. Maybe God ordained the mirror for the purpose of reminding us of his existence in Imago Dei. Think of it like this, too. When we examine the human body inside and out, we can see how exceedingly intricate and complex it is and how fascinating it is there really isn't anything like the human body in the known universe it is extraordinary I think somebody once said that a cell contains as much data and movement and energy as New York City one human cell I mean we have a science teacher here he would know these facts better than I do but I can tell you as a science teacher he he probably looks at the human body and says goodness gracious we have Uh, We are so complex, even in the tiniest invisible qualities and things that we have, we are extraordinarily complex and intricate. If our bodies are exceedingly intricate and complex, how much more intricate and complex would the creator of our bodies be? You look at yourself and you think of all that exists here and what's going on in you. Now think about your creator. How much more beyond would he be than this? How much more intricate and complex would God be over his created beings? Vastly, right? Infinitely, right? Yes. To relate the creator God who is infinitely complex, infinitely beautiful, infinitely brilliant to shiny, deaf, dumb, mute idols is the pinnacle of foolishness based on our own existence. You don't have to look at Half Dome to come to that conclusion. Look in a mirror. If somehow we look at this and then say, God must be like a rock. 
That is the pinnacle of foolishness. Do you think that that would be offensive to God? I wonder why he hates idolatry so much. It's the first commandment of the ten. Do not have any other gods before me. I wonder if our being created in his image and general revelation has something to do with that. I created you. Don't you ever sell me out for a dumb stick. Something that can't speak. Something that has no mind. Can you imagine what God must feel? He must have felt with these people. He must have thought of them, what he thinks of us when we do this. I think that's the, an offense to God. Paul actually warned as, he says, as, here's a warning, he rebuked and then he warns, as his offspring we should not think of God as gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. We ourselves are a testimony to his existence and that he is so far beyond his creation. He's incomprehensible. The only thing that we can comprehend is what he has revealed about himself and we have a really hard time with that. Now what sort of inference can be, could be drawn from Paul's statements about God in verses 24 to 28? You know, he's... The nine points and these things are there. What sort of inference could we draw from there? Let me summarize what he has said thus far and then provide an inference in the form of a question. Firstly, if God has created the world, if God has created, yeah, I'll put it in the form of several questions. If God has created the world and everything in it, if God is the Lord of heaven and earth, if God does not live in temples made by man, he's not contained there, if God is not dependent on human beings, if human beings are dependent on God, if God has created all men, if God has determined the lengths of our lives and the places we will live or live. If God has personally provided for us by his own will and providence, if God is close, if we are God's offspring, imago Dei, if God has done all of these things for the purpose of revealing himself to us, here's the million-dollar inference or question. How then did the Athenians miss him? How does anyone miss him? Paul may have thought something like this. I always try to get into his mind. He may have thought something like this as he walked the streets of Athens prior to him preaching this sermon. God has revealed himself to these people through creation, providence, nearness, and imago Dei. And they sensed his existence. They're very religious. But they responded to him by creating 149 gods, 70,000 plus statues and images, a multitude of temples and altars, and an entire system of religion which is based on superstition and myths. No wonder Paul got angry. How did they miss all of the visual things that he's displayed? The very falafel sandwich, whatever it is that they eat, was given by him is a representation of his existence. Every glance in a mirror, and mirrors were not good back then. They weren't as clear as ours, but every glance in a mirror is God expressing his existence. I made you. No wonder he was angry. All of that worship and, and, and adoration going to, as image bearers, Imago Dei, 
to junk. The same thing could be said about America. Cars, people, politics, possessions, sex, drugs, alcohol, all the idols we Americans yield ourselves to as Imago Dei. No wonder he was angry. What causes people to miss God completely or to misunderstand him as the Athenians had done? Look at verses 30 to 31. Paul says, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all, to all by raising him from the dead. Why do people miss God completely or at least like the Athenians did misunderstand him? The answer is ignorance. It's right there at the beginning of verse 30, the times of ignorance. But we must understand something about ignorance according to the scriptures, more particularly right here. When we think of ignorance, we think of it as being a lack of knowledge, and rightfully so. But in the scriptures, the term can connote something quite different. Ignorance can mean lack of morality, Luke's use of the word here seems to imply both the lack of knowledge and the lack of morality. That is what ignorance means here. The Athenians were ignorant of God for sure, but not because they didn't have access to knowledge, for God had provided knowledge in and through general revelation. But because they missed it, not because of a lack of knowledge, because God didn't say, here I am, but because of their immorality. That is what blocked them. Their sinful and wicked deeds had hardened their eyes, stuffed their ears, stonified, solidified their hearts against the general revelation and knowledge of God. You see, they're culpable. No one can say, you never made yourself known to me. I plead ignorance. Paul described the situation, and more particularly their situation, Perfectly in Romans 1, 24 to 25, because of the lusts and impurities of their hearts, because of their immorality, they exchanged the truth about God. Remember, he's made himself known through general revelation. They exchanged the truth in general revelation for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is, despite what they've done, blessed forever. Paul says in verse 30b, and I would say that this would be the paraphrase of it, because of your sin and ignorance, you better repent 
Because God has fixed a day by which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Now Paul broadened this warning out to include all people from every tribe and tongue. This isn't just a Greek issue. He said God commands people everywhere to repent. The Athenians were not the only guilty ones. All people everywhere were then, are today, always have been guilty of this. All people love sin. All people have exchanged the truth for a lie. All people suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We're all guilty and need to be saved. That's a fact. Jack. In verse 31b, Paul was speaking of the Lord Jesus. God appointed Jesus to be the judge of the world. Go over and read in your own time John 5, 22 to 27, and it's declared in other places. He goes on to say that the proof of the coming judgment and judge is seen in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus Christ affirms that judgment is coming and that Jesus will be the judge. Here we see the gospel. This is where he begins to bring, and I think the whole thing has to do with the gospel, but this is where he begins to bring in the resurrection of Jesus, which is Part of the gospel. Here we see the gospel. Paul basically has implied since judgment is coming and Jesus is the judge, repent and plead with Jesus for mercy. Judgment's coming because of what you've done and what all men have done. The proof of it is the resurrection. It was Jesus that rose. It's Jesus who returns to judge. Turn to him is what he's saying. He's your only hope. This is what he called for his listeners to do in verses 30 to 31. How did his audience respond to his sermon? Look at 32 to 34. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, or Damaris, and others with them. Luke recorded three different responses for us here. And each of them will apply to each of us somehow. That's what I love about the word of God. It's amazing. I mean, it's just, I'm a guy. I can't, I can't come up with this stuff. I can come up with some stuff, but I'll tell you what. It's almost as if God knew exactly what to say to us, isn't it? Duh. Nobody knows us better than him. Luke even records the responses so that they would be paralleled with every person who would ever be presented the gospel because these responses include all people. Three of them. Number one, the scoffing response. 
32, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Okay, just for the record, Greeks did not believe in resurrection. They thought it was stupid. They thought it was foolishness. You remember how the Bible says to some, it is a stumbling block to others, it is foolishness. We're talking about foolishness now. Some of those present said, can you believe he's talking about a resurrection? What a moron. And you know what? When the gospel is preached, boy, do people mock, don't they? They just mock. They mock by saying, I'm a good person. How dare you? Jesus didn't even, for crying out loud, the Holocaust never happened. How could Jesus have come 2,000 years ago? Duh. They just mock and they mock and they mock. Can't be true. How stupid. We're good people. We do right things. We do good things. I love my family. I love my kids. Religion's for the birds. This is stupid. This is foolishness. This is a joke. Jesus, if he did live, he certainly didn't die on a cross for my sin. And he certainly didn't get buried in a tomb for three days and rise. Come on. We're trying to talk in rational, logical terms here, pastor. Logic says it's impossible. That's because the gospel isn't logical in some ways. It is supernatural. It is beyond our comprehension truth in some cases. It can't be received intellectually or physically or any of those things. It has to be received by Faith. Mock, mock, mock. You do what you do, I'll do what I do. You can, you can do that, that's fine. Just don't push, put it on me. It's not for me. Mock, mock, mock. The world mocks. Two... The sandbag response. I remember when I worked at uh, Good Guys for about 10 minutes. <laughs> Get out of here! We had the guy, the manager of the store's name was Mike Ramey, and he was hilarious. And uh, I had sold this job, and, and one of the installers in the back was putting it in. And man, he was taking a long time on something that shouldn't have taken very long. And I crossed Mike Ramey as I was headed out to the shop to check on the job one more time while the customer is getting ticked. And I said, what's Joe doing out there? He's sandbagging. That's all he said. Sandbag means to put off. 32B, but others said, we will hear you again about this. Not now. Maybe in the future. We want to come back and hear a little bit more about it. To put off. Sandbag means to put off, right? The world scoffs. Some in the world scoff, the majority, and some sandbag. Some put it off. And I can't help but think, but what if, what makes you think that you'll be able to come back next Sunday? 
you, you've, you've, you've forecasted, you, you've figured out how God works and, and you can see the future? Do you have a crystal ball? Do you have the, the eight thing that you shake and uh, not tomorrow? Oh, no, shake it again. I mean, how did you come up with the, the concept that you'll be here next Sunday to hear the gospel? What if God calls you to account tonight while you're asleep? What if you get T-boned on the way out of here? What if somebody comes up on this curb and runs you and your family over? It could happen, heaven forbid. What makes you think you have tomorrow? See, we're not supposed to present the gospel as an option. It's life and death. Well, I'll just come back and hear again later. I'll come back. I'll come, I'll come next Christmas. Fool. As you know the warning in James, we'll go off and make a bunch of money out of town and we'll come back. It'll be on you fool. How dare you presume upon the Lord? You see, the gospel is not meant to be put off. It's meant to be received by faith right when you hear it. Not tomorrow, not later, not next week, not next year, now. And the world sandbags. I remember one time I was talking to my boss about this several years ago, and I said, you need the gospel, my friend. There's coming a time where Jesus is going to return and there's going to be a tribulation period and, and the good news is that, the, that he's going to save people during that. Well, I'll wait for that time. You don't realize that one third of the earth's population is completely destroyed the first day? What makes you think that you're not going to be? I won't be one of them. Fool. Three. The surrender response. Scoff, sandbag, surrender. But some men, 34, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris or Damaris, and others with them. Some believed, some repented, some believed. It wasn't a whole lot. You would certainly think that in this setting with all these people and all these judges that there would have been a big revival that will especially with this sermon, right? Nah. It's just a handful of people but they surrendered to Jesus Christ. I'll close with a few questions. Which of these types best describes you? Are you a scoffer? You think what you've heard is one big joke? You think it isn't true? You think there is no God? Go look in the mirror and say that. Are you a scoffer? Do you reject Jesus Christ and this gracious offer that he is making you right now? to turn from your sin and self-sufficiency and to put your faith in him. Only Jesus can save you and only Jesus will judge you. Are you a sandbagger? 
putting off this gracious offer of the Lord to repent and believe. How do you know you'll be alive at 8 tonight? Or at noon tomorrow? Or at 3 p.m. on Friday? Don't put off the gospel any longer. You will not be able to plead. No one will be able to plead ignorance before God. He will say to you, you heard Paul's sermon. You listened to Pastor Phil. You heard your Sunday school teacher. You listened to that preacher on the radio. I gave you plenty of opportunities to repent and believe, but you kept sandbagging. And now it's too late. Are you surrendered? Are you like Dionysius and Damaris? And I love how Luke listed here in the text a guy and a gal. Men, have you surrendered to the lordship of Jesus Christ? If so, thank the Lord and say amen. God has been gracious to you. Ladies, have you surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? If so, thank the Lord and say amen. Amen. God has been gracious to you. We have a time of communion where we can reflect upon what we've heard. This is for believers. That believers would reflect upon what you've heard and learned. That you would, those who said amen... And those who were too shy to do it but are still saved. That we would reflect upon what we've learned. That we would take a moment, as Aaron said earlier, that we would take this seriously. And that we would confess and repent of any sin that we might have. That we would remember the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's all in him, man. We're justified because of what he did. We don't have to earn anything with him. We can live freely and faithfully to him and just just glory in him and bring him glory and obey his law. It's amazing. Commit yourself, lastly, to obeying the word of God, the precepts of God, the commands of God. Repent, remember, be refreshed, and commit yourself to obedience. Get back on track today. Father, thank you for this time. Bless this time. Be in our midst. Be in our presence. We know you're here. Speak to each of us individually during this time that we might remember our sin and confess, that we might remember what Christ has done, that we might say, Amen, thank you, that we might be refreshed by your grace. Your mercies are made new for us every day. Thank you. And we might be committed to the truth above all that we would be committed to the truth. May we enjoy this time in your presence and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Help yourselves.